2: Mr. Gorbachev, tickle my balls. So, no. always sounds no. to me. No. Welcome back <laughs> to the Cold War podcast. My name is Cameron Riley. Your name <clears throat> is um,
1: Comrade Ray.
2: Comrade Ray. Episode twenty-six mm-hmm. uh, today oh, right. on the show. We have a very esteemed guest, Ray. Now, yes, I'm impressed. Now, well, we want to make sure he's impressed with us. And by us, I mean you, right. Ray. So have you practiced the
1: questions this time? Have you, have you... I am the most awesome parrot you will ever buy in a pet have store.
2: Have you... Yes. Are you sure that you can pronounce the words and the names correctly this Ooh. time? Don't,
1: okay, okay, okay. No. I, I del- but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come close.
2: I deliberately tried to craft these questions in a way where you didn't have any big words. Ah,
1: <laughs> uh, yeah, I see that. Nothing confusing yeah, the truncated. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah uh don't add you. don't add lib in the middle of the questions like you did last time, go off on a tangent and then have to go forget where you are and then have to come back just like I'm like this is like this is like a Woody Allen script these questions, right? You fucking read them as they are written. No no ad libbing, I'm not paying you to be creative. Just fucking read if the questions. If I remember
1: correctly, the first interview went rather well and I contributed mm. a lot. This is the
2: this is the Keenan Thompson one? Is this the one you're talking about? I guess. <laughs> the way you said George Keenan, and he went, You mean Keenan? Well,
1: oh, oh, yeah. I got yeah. a name wrong. I talking about my questions and my insights as an American. Oh, oh yeah. In the greatest country in the world and our arrogance, you know. So <laughs> you're welcome.
2: Okay. Our guest today is uh, Frederick Logval. He is a Swedish American historian, uh, born in Stockholm, I believe. And uh, you know he's uh, he's got my old job. He's the Lawrence D. Belfer Professor of International Affairs at the John F. Kennedy School of Government, and he's a professor because of you history beat in, the out. H- in the in <laughs> the beat you off, beat you out, right in the Harvard <laughs> Faculty yeah. of Arts and Sciences. So just, you know, your average professor of history at Harvard uh, holds a PhD in history from Yale University. And let's face it, who doesn't? And is a past president of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations. In 2013, he won something called a Pulitzer Prize for History. Uh, for his book Embers of War, The Fall of an Empire and the Making of America's Vietnam. And in 2009, he co-authored America's Cold War, The Politics of Insecurity, with our previous guest, Campbell Craig. So, uh,
1: And it's a cracking good read. It really, really, really,
2: is. really is. It's one of the three... Well, I've had a number of people say, what is, what's, what's, if I had to read three books on the Cold War, what would you recommend? And I recommend yeah. that uh, typically, the decision to drop the atomic bomb by Gar Perovitz, mm-hmm. and either William Appleman Williams, "The Tragedy of American Diplomacy," or uh, George uh, Kennan, as opposed to Keenan Thompson, uh, right. his book on just called "American Diplomacy."
1: Well, I think I heard that Kenan Thompson has a uh, a degree, um, you know, where they just give you one for being awesome. Oh yeah. History. Oh, so, don't get me wrong.
2: Kind of. Kenan Thompson, he can talk about the Cold War say- till the cows come home. Uh, so anyway, we're going to get Fred on uh, in a minute and we're going to have a chat uh, about uh, America's role in uh, creating the Cold War. So. Bear with me while I try and dial him in. Professor Logevall, this is Cameron. I'm so sorry. Are you? How are you?
0: I'm fine, thank you. Fine, thank you. I'm glad we connected.
2: You sound pretty good so far. When we had Campbell Craig on, he was talking to us from a bar somewhere uh, in the countryside. A train, so train station. You're doing better than that already.
0: <laughs> oh, all right. We're already we're already ahead yeah. of the game then. <laughs> it's possible. You know, um, we had some workers here at the house, and I wonder if. Mm. Workers. That um, if the power uh, if if there's if it's off somehow in this room, well let's let's try let's try this. How about this? If we get if we get cut off, try the landline again. Okay. Um, but we can try the mobile here to to see how it goes.
2: You sound fine. I mean, you you realize, of course, okay. those workers were really CIA AGB. agents in disguise uh, uh, bugging your mic. Yeah. Well,
0: I think yeah. They knew that we were speaking this evening. Yes. And they took action.
2: Well, we are definitely on the watch list, but uh, I assume you are too. All right, so we've already done a bit of an introduction, uh, Professor Fred. Uh, and I'd like to start with the probably the most important question. What's your favorite Cold War joke?
0: <laughs> Do You need to give me... You need to give me a heads up for questions <laughs> no, about the no, Here a, I am, all seriousness, yeah. you know, uh, historiography and books mm-hmm. and uh, his, weighty historical questions. time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm, I'm coming back to you on the joke.
2: I've got one for you then. Um, so this uh, delegation from Georgia leaves Stalin's office after they've been having a meeting with him for about an hour. Just after they leave, Stalin realises he can't find his pipe so he calls Dzinski to find out if anyone from the delegation took his pipe. After about thirty minutes, Stalin finds the pipe under the table, calls Dzinski and says, "Let the delegation go." Dzinski answers. Stalin and says, "Oh, well, I'm sorry, comrade Stalin, but one half of the delegation already admitted that they took your pipe, <laughs> and the other half died during questioning."
1: <laughs> Ouch! Oh, that's that's no very fringe. good. I think
2: Ray's, got, it. Ray's got one, too, awesome. but we'll save that up for later.
0: Um, All right. Yeah. I, and I'll come up with one or two, I'm sure. But, yes, carry
2: oh, on. Oh, don't feel the pressure, Fred. Uh, now, we, we've we already had uh, Campbell on about a month ago, as I said, and we've already discussed. Mm-hmm. Oh, terrific. Yeah, he, he was uh, wonderful. And so we've, we've already talked about things like free security and, and the politics of insecurity and... I didn't I did want to cover the same sort of ground, but feel free to, to speak about those if you feel the need. It's, yeah. it's worth going over again and again for the listeners. But um, I wanted to actually start by asking you about William Appleman Williams. I believe you, like myself, are a bit of an admirer of his. Can you yeah. talk a, yeah. a little bit of, from your view about sure. uh, Bill Williams's contribution to understanding American foreign policy?
0: Oh, I'd be happy to. Yeah, and so uh, a quick little anecdote: when I applied to graduate school, which happened to be at Yale, they had an essay that you had to write as part of the application, and the essay question was, the prompt was, "Which book of history do you wish you had written, and why?" Mm-hmm. And I selected, as a as a greenhorn um, coming out of undergraduate studies, I selected selected William Appleman Williams' "The Tragedy of American Diplomacy," mm. and you know i argued then i guess what i would say to you now which is that it's a profoundly important book in part or maybe in 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 essence because williams suggested that in order to understand american foreign policy we have to look within prior to williams i think most historians had suggested that the united states was was reactive was responding in the case of the cold war to Soviet aggression, and Williams said, "No, we actually have to look at the American domestic system, uh, and in particular, he was interested in political economy, and I think that just changed how so many people viewed American foreign policy. And so, the book, as you know, had this um, this transformative effect. I think what he misses, and what Campbell and I try to do in our book, among other things, is to." Um, "Talk about domestic politics and you know, elections and partisan, partisan wrangling in a way that I don't think interested William so much. It was much more for him about economic imperatives. Um, but still, uh, a great book, one that I have all of my, my graduate students certainly read.
2: Yeah, I, I, I kind of think of this this line of succession in some ways, the development of that line of thinking from Williams through to Kennan's later stuff, and uh, then you guys yep. uh, is more recently building on yep. top of that. And, um, and they're, they're the three books, along with Gara Perovitz's book on the decision to drop the atomic bomb that I recommend to oh, our listeners. It's yes. mm-hmm. a good starting point to get uh, a view of the Genesis of the Cold War that they probably didn't get taught in high school. Um, yeah. Ray, do you want to uh, yeah. ask uh, the good professor a question and maybe just say hi? I would love me. to. Hello,
1: Professor. Thank you for being on the show.
0: Oh, my pleasure. Good to, good to okay. chat with you now and also briefly a few minutes ago and then we got cut off.
1: <laughs> exactly, which, as usual, is Cam's fault, but we're going to let that go for now. Yeah, of course. Okay. Of course. Ray's we'll used to getting now. cut off by me, yeah. I um uh, yeah, you build up a tolerance after a while. But anyway, uh let's see here. So um in your book America's Cold War, The Politics of Insecurity, with obviously Campbell Craig, who was uh, as Cam said, mm-hmm. wonderful on the show, even though he was in a bar, but again, we can't do anything about that. Well um, judge. You said we got, we don't know exactly. We don't judge. You suggested that the Soviets were pretty much contained by 1950, which as American, certainly came as a shock to me. And I think a lot of Americans would be shocked by that kind of would be that kind of statement if they had, you know, if they read your book, uh, can you explain for us the idea behind containment and what you meant by that?
0: Yeah, I, I think it's fair to say that even many, many, you know, fellow historians, um, were surprised, shall we say, by that that assertion. But I think we feel, Camel and I feel strongly about that. I think the argument uh, was that containment, of course, came into being soon after World War II. The idea was that, um, as the name suggests, the United States had a principal role in making sure that, you know, the Soviets couldn't um, expand far beyond certainly um, Central and Eastern Europe. And... um, Kennan, who was a key player in all of this, although I don't know that he was as instrumental as some have suggested, I think he gave a name to a policy that was already, I would argue, uh, emerging. Um, right. Nevertheless, said that um, this is the policy, this is the grand strategy that the United States should adopt. Um, we see it then manifested in several ways in in critical months in '46 and '47, absolutely fascinating months. Um, when the Cold War really begins in earnest, and Walter Lippmann writes his book that gives it its name, a book mm-hmm. called um, Cold War, and we argue in the book that the principal aim, uh, which was to, to shore up Western Europe um, and to stabilize the situation in Europe in this struggle over Europe, which was really at the heart of the Cold War in its in its first uh, years, had really been achieved. Uh, we argue. By certainly by 1949, uh, maybe even by late 48, um, and as you suggested, Ray, um, it's a if not a counterintuitive notion. It's, it's certainly not one that most historians, most readers, I think, would um, would accept. They would they would argue that it, of course, continues for decades and periods mm. of great tension. But but we think that that in in, in, in essence. It had succeeded by forty eight or forty nine and moreover, I would just add Kenan himself, as we suggest in the book, as you know he's, he he's he's a, an important figure throughout the narrative. Kenan himself, I think, believed that that by forty eight or forty nine this thing was well on the way to 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 success
1: if If I can follow up, so if we've got them contained, they're not going anywhere. obviously they're trying to rebuild from what the Nazis had done to them. Was there any and I don't even know how realistic this is, was there any chance, okay, we've got them contained, maybe we can now mm-hmm. try to talk to them to, to work things out. Look, you're not yeah. going anywhere because we can't let you. Let's be civil about this. Let's, let's at least have a dialogue, a realistic dialogue, now that we've achieved our yeah. objectives. Or is that
0: just oh, weighing no. up? I think it? it's, it, no, I think it's, I think you've put it extremely well. I think that Um, This is something I've puzzled over in some of my writings, you know, independent of Campbell. Um, And in an essay I wrote called A Critique of Containment, I wondered about this very thing. Why was it not possible? Why did so few people say Mm -hmm. that very thing? And now we're in a position, say 1949, now we're in a position to actually bargain, to actually have serious negotiations with Moscow um right. uh, on outstanding issues, and it's worth noting that not only did Kennan, I think, come to that view, but Winston Churchill um, argued for that this now is a time to bargain. Um, and there were others at the time, it's not simply in the context of, of hindsight, but even at the time, there were a few voices, not that many, mm-hmm. but who argued precisely along the ways along the lines you just suggested.
2: So I, I want to come back a little bit later on to what the Soviet ambitions uh, were at that stage, as we know of them now, since the opening up of the archives, etc. But something you said makes me want to move towards um, domestic American politics at the time. In a number of your books, um, and um, particularly America's Cold War and also uh, Embers of War, congratulations on the Pulitzer Prize for that, by the way. Um well-
0: Thank you very much.
2: We're, we're, they don't have a Pulitzer Prize for History podcasting yet, but uh, you know we, we, we've got that one, one in the day. bag. When they we're do. I'm sure when they come out with it.
0: It's already been decided when they get it.
2: Yeah, <laughs> by us, anyway. Um, your, your book suggests that the Cold War and the Vietnam War were largely the result of American politicians from both parties trying to appear tough to the electorate. Um, you mentioned at one point that yeah. Eisenhower, when he was running for president, uh, brazenly attacked Truman's weak and passive Cold War foreign policy, and that JFK and LBJ, with respect to Vietnam, were worried about looking soft on communism. Even Kennan yeah, yeah. wrote later on that uh, he believed American statesmen were more concerned for the domestic political effects of what he is saying or doing than about their actual effects on our relations with other countries. Now, again, I suspect this perspective would be shocking for a lot of Americans who tend to think that the U.S. were forced into the Cold War because of Soviet aggression. So can you talk a little bit about how this fear of looking weak played a role?
0: Oh, I think it played a very key role, I would say, with respect to both conflicts. So if we take both the Cold War and vietnam i would say that there were geopolitical uh reasons for for the initial p- policy decision so i don't mean to suggest and i don't think campbell would suggest that it's all about domestic politics i think if we in the case of the cold war one has to acknowledge as we do in our book that after world war ii there was a vacuum in post-war europe that the two remaining powers that were left standing, if you will, the U.S. and the Soviet Union, they were bound on some level to rush to fill that vacuum. Mm. I would also say that the, that the decline of empires is important in terms of the, the breakout of the Cold War. So there are structural reasons, I think, in the system that allow this to happen. Nevertheless, um, I think from an early point in the Cold War struggle, I would say in '47, you see I think, really powerful and, to my mind, fascinating evidence that Republicans see an opening, which is to use the soft-on-communism club um, to beat up on Democrats. They see that this is a winning strategy in domestic political terms. And it, I think, explains a great deal, and this is a theme in America's Cold War, as you know, it explains a great deal about why the conflict lasts as long as it does. I think politicians in both parties... See a vested interest in in continuing uh, the struggle, and there's an interesting dynamic that takes place. Well, a couple of things happen. One is that the, the 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 range of acceptable political discourse in the United States becomes narrower uh, and narrower, with very important implications. And I think any savvy politician who wants to to be elected and continue to be elected, to be reelected, realize that the smart political strategy is to be to the right of your uh, opponents, to be more hawkish um, than the next guy. And we argue that that's really important, and I think in the same way in Vietnam, um, as time passes, as you get into the latter part of the Eisenhower years, and as you certainly get into the to Kennedy and Johnson, um, that those domestic political Uh, imperatives and and careerism, I guess we could say, I just think looms very large. I don't think you can understand the war in Vietnam without paying close attention to this domestic um, situation dynamic uh, and what both Republicans and Democrats feel they need to do. And Democrats in particular always feel vulnerable. Again, to the charge that they're soft on communism, and I think that's key for both Kennedy and Johnson. Mm.
2: As a as an outsider, a, a non American, although for the record, I have an American wife and an American son. I guess technically, he's got a passport. Uh-huh. Um, it, it, it's fascinating to me this this dichotomy between the way that you've positioned this. Uh, fear on behalf of american politicians of of appearing weak and this the, the electorate's response to more hawkish statements during campaigning and the way that americans yeah. tend to perceive themselves and their country and i know you you're a, a non native you were born in stockholm mm-hmm. i believe correct so, you've got, I, Although I imagine you've been there quite a long time now, but you, you've got a, a, a somewhat of an outsider's perspective still, I would, I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Do, is there a, a strange dichotomy there between the way Americans perceive themselves as a nation of peace and this yeah. f- sort of fear-mongering, uh, hawkish uh, rhetoric that uh, you know, I think you summed up in the book with Campbell as the politics yeah. of insecurity?
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that there is a a dichotomy, um, and you put it quite well. And I'm not sure that we quite resolve it in the book. Um, you know, on the one hand, Americans, as you say, have considered themselves, you know, John Q. citizen and Jane Q. citizen. If you if you were to talk with them, many of them would say during the period that we're discussing now, and, and probably even still today, that we're a peace we're a peaceful people. Uh, and we certainly don't want to to go in and start shooting up, uh, shooting up other countries. And yet, no country has been at war more often since World War II than the United States, maybe even since World War I. Um, and so there is this, uh, this dichotomy. And I guess what, how I would explain it is that Americans, I won't say that they're uniquely vulnerable. I don't know if we want to get into the discussion of American exceptionalism, although I think there's something to it, but they're certainly vulnerable to threat mongering by their politicians. I think it's is relatively parochial because it's a large country and, you know, you don't have to learn that much about the outside world. Unlike in my native Sweden, small country in Scandinavia, you, you almost are, you know, you're compelled on some level to learn much more about the world around you. But for whatever reason, I think it has resonated. The politicians have found that inflating threat uh, in the Cold War and since, you know, this has continued. Uh, it works, uh, and if 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 the name of the game is to be elected and reelected and to win positions of 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 influence as a as a as an advisor, as an official, then um, it's been a it's time and again been a really powerful message. I don't know if that'd be. I mean, you're asking a bigger question. I, I think that's at least part of it. Um, um, and and an answer.
2: And and the crazy thing about this – sorry, Ray, I know I'm hogging the conversation for a second – but the, the, the crazy thing about that is, as you point out in uh, your book with Campbell, America is uniquely uh, – except for maybe Australia um, – not the subject of external threats, hasn't been across its history because oh. – I think, as you explained yeah. it, it has two very large moats, the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, yep. and weak neighbours to the north and the south. So there is this constant fear of threat from outside. It's, it's played yeah. out in, in domestic politics. And yet the United States and Australia, and Australia maybe even more so because we don't even have a north and south neighbour that are attached via landmass, mm-hmm. uh, have a, a historically unique position of uh, mm-hmm. security. So it's, I don't know, it's, it's mind-boggling that they get away yeah. with that. And perhaps <laughs> no, really, do they it... get away with it because there are no actual genuine threats? If there were genuine threats, they'd need to be a little bit more circumspect about how they played them up.
0: Yeah. No, I think I think your points are excellent. And my colleague here at Harvard, Steve Walt, who you might want to have on at some point, a terrific international relations scholar, as you may know. Steve has a book that he's working on now, uh, which I've read in, in draft in which he explores this more in the contemporary current day context, mm. but also with a nod to the history. And I think he reaches very much that same conclusion that it's, it's, it's a puzzle that you've got a, a, a country with tremendous physical security. We probably haven't seen it really since the days of the Roman Republic really. Um, and yet, um, not with, <laughs> excuse me. Notwithstanding this, you have seen um, politicians behave in the way that they have, which, as we argue in our book, and which I also argue with respect to Vietnam, mm. has had really disastrous consequences. I think that, that um, we can say now, and many people at the time said, in fact, I think Lyndon Johnson himself privately said, you know, the outcome in Vietnam doesn't really matter to me, doesn't matter to this country. Mm-hmm. Whether Vietnam falls, quote unquote, or doesn't is really of no consequence to the national security of the United States. Mm. so people people understood this. that's the that's the thing that's just striking and and not to mention uh, what's the word hard to grasp when you think about the fact that fifty eight thousand Americans answered the call, went to southeast asia and 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 died. Um, um for in in in, in, in the war. Um, so um, it's it's a very important point that you raise. Um, I think it's still with us today. Maybe it's lessening slightly. I'm interested in the fact that you know somebody like Rand Paul, mm-hmm. even though his candidacy went nowhere, somebody like Rand Paul can run for the Republican nomination, argue, I think, some interesting things about what should be America's role. What's our real security situation and the, and the nature of our threats? Um, and you know, he can get an audience, and he can get people to 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 agree with him to an extent. That suggests that maybe there's a shift, but I'm not sure.
2: Mm, although the current presidential campaign, where it's at, wouldn't uh, would uh, no, support that it it's going to shift much in the next uh, eight years, anyway. Um, <laughs>
1: Sorry,
0: Ray. No, I think that's probably.
2: <laughs> Let's get back yeah. to the get back to the scripted questions, Ray.
1: Sure. Well, actually, I just wanted to add on to that. The first part of your answer to Cam's question, I thought you were going to say um, yes. Um, everybody's doing it for political consumption, domestic consumption, so they can uh, so they can get reelected or whatever. But the the Congress has learned their lesson. The American people have learned their lesson, and we don't do that anymore. <laughs> but obviously, that's sadly not <laughs> true. Even with today's Uh, What's going on in the Middle East? I mean, um, you know, Al Qaeda or whoever ISIS can do whatever they want. But again, America, as in the people in this country, are relatively safe from whatever actions they take unless they want to come over here. But again, we just we just feel like we have to defeat everybody, no matter where you're at, even if you don't pose a threat, a realistic threat to us as a nation. So I guess, like you said, the politicians learned a very good lesson. And I guess the American people did
0: not. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I would say again, uh, and as a historian, I should stay away from from, from prediction. Um, right. Goodness knows we're, we're not very good at it, but but I do wonder. Um, I do wonder if there isn't perhaps a change a little bit underway. And I'm 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 thinking back to um, the debate a couple of years ago about whether to intervene militarily in Syria, um, and the British, as you may recall, basically uh, decided they could not go along. The Congress in the United States then said, wait a minute, we're not sure we want to uh, pursue this. Mm-hmm. Um, again, I don't know how much t- more importance to attach to it because I have a feeling that Obama himself privately was was very reluctant to go in with military force. But mm-hmm. um, maybe, and it could be wishful thinking, uh, but maybe Cong- the, the Congress is beginning to say we have a role to play in all of this. We have a constitutional role that we've basically abdicated over the course Mm. of the Cold War and after. Let's reassert uh, to some extent that authority that we have and have a real debate Mm. uh, about uh, the issues. You can't always do it, I suppose. Cuban Missile Crisis doesn't afford the kind of deliberative process that that you would like. But Vietnam, they had all the time in the world to debate fully whether to do this and Despite private urgings to Johnson not to go in, they weren't willing to debate it. They weren't willing to say it publicly, publicly with with terrible consequences. So, right. um, yeah, maybe there's a change.
1: Well, just once again, it's prospect. not weak. Yeah. Right, right. But we, we, I guess, we want the Congress to learn. It. It's not weakness to discuss, to debate, to think right. out loud, to yeah. exchange ideas. It doesn't mean that you're weak and that you should be voted out of office. That just You're trying to be practical. But anyway, so let me I'm sorry. Let me get back to uh, to this. So um, I was thinking about the uh, Truman Doctrine of uh, 1947, and it was just so staggering to me as an American that here's this country that pretty much stays out of everybody's business. You know, General Washington tells us stay away from Europe. And entanglements and all this stuff, and up until World War One, we did a, I guess, roughly World War One, We did a decent job of staying out. But you know, Truman Doctrine 1947 says that we will assist any nation face, facing in, internal, excuse yeah. me, internal subdivision. Or, it, it, I mean, it's just like we went from zero to 60 just in, in an amazing short yeah. amount of time, you know?
0: Yeah, and, and I think that the Truman Doctrine. You know, it just looms so important for, the, for precisely that reason. And it's why, you know, thoughtful uh, uh, observers, people with deep international experience like Walter Lipman, I mentioned before, like George Kennan, uh, quickly distance themselves distance themselves from the, the scope of the Truman Doctrine. Because as you said, zero to 60, all of a sudden a kind of global commitment um and even though I personally wouldn't want to draw a straight line from the Truman Doctrine in 1947 to, for example, you know, Vietnam 1965, I don't want to draw, uh, draw a straight line. There's no question that the, that the doctrine, that the policy decisions that flowed from it, and of course the Korean War happens not not too long thereafter, uh, after 47, that is, um, they have an enormous consequence. Not least, as we were saying earlier, in domestic political terms.
1: Well, the, I'm sorry, just a quick follow up. And the other thing I was, when I was reading in your book, even the point where countries wanted to be neutral, they're like, okay, we get that you have this big global thing going on. We just want to be neutral countries, do our thing, and stay out of this. But even with the American mentality, that was not good enough. That was. I don't know, almost being a friend to the enemy. America just couldn't tolerate anyone being neutral. You were with us, or you were against us. I mean, it just shows the the extremism of our mentality, I guess in the in the nineteen fifties.
0: Well, and yeah, it was a it was a kind of zero sum game. And Dulles, in particular, argued to the neutrals, including my native my my Swedes, but also mm-hmm. others. But yes, in this conflict. You really are with us, or you're against us, and, neut- and neutrality is not a, a viable uh, policy to have. It goes to another point that is critical, and I think it's a kind of sub-theme in America's Cold War, and it's been something that I've thought a lot about, and that is the, 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 fear, the fear of negotiations. And the, we talked a little bit about this, I think, at the, at the outset, but the disinclination administration after administration, and I think it's true of Democrats and Republicans, Obama mm-hmm. is an interesting exception and we could come back to Obama. But until Obama, the aversion that American officials have had for so long to bargaining with adversaries, it's not it's not negotiating with the Australians or with the British or you know even the French, that goes mm-hmm. on. But the idea that you can actually sit down with, with adversaries, Uh, and have um, agreements based on mutual concessions. And I think that's the problem. The idea is that you can actually, you know, bargain with the devil, with, with uh, with evil powers in the international system. That's not something we can do. But again, I think it's been something that's been really important. And I think the neutrals, to come back to what you were talking about, that was one of the things they frowned upon with respect to the neutrals, is that the neutrals were talking about diplomacy, and the mm-hmm. need to to, to, to engage in, in in serious discussions with both adversaries and uh, friends and neutrals, and that Dulles and Company could not abide.
2: Right. This this whole Truman Doctrine of uh, America assisting any nation facing internal subversion or external aggression, it's it's not only a long way from the previous policy of isolationism, but mm-hmm. it, it also seems to fly in the face of the Atlantic Charter, which promised countries self-determination. I guess one yeah. of the things that I always yeah. scratch my head over is, well, surely the Viet Minh uh, fighting for mm-hmm. form of self-determination in, in uh, their own country fit under the banner of the Atlantic Charter. Uh, sure. Uh, but I guess there was a lot... And long-
0: Ho Chi Minh, by the way, hmm. Ho Chi Minh totally believed that. Right. Uh, Ho Chi Minh, sorry to interrupt you, but he no, he uh, he didn't he didn't specifically reference, at least to my knowledge and my research, he didn't specifically reference the Atlantic Charter but everything about him in, in 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 World War II and leading up to the Declaration of, of Independence
2: well, I was, actually, was about the, oh, sorry, the
0: essence of the, of the Atlantic Charter. Yeah. Mm. No, go ahead.
2: No, no, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off. I was just going to say that I, was, uh, I, I really enjoyed in your book, Embers of War, uh, your mm. discussion about Ho Chi Minh and how for the longest time he was actually sort of pro-American. Believed that America was oh. going to be different. They weren't going to be like yeah. the French. That they did believe in self determination yeah. and how it. Uh, he very slowly. Uh, it took him a very very long time to lose that it optimistic view of the United States.
0: Yeah, and it's a, It's just for me, you know, as somebody who is now um, I have joint citizenship, so I'm both Swedish and uh, American, I guess now. But it's just for me. Uh, as somebody who lives here now and cares deeply about this country it 's just a, a tragedy to consider the degree to which Ho you know starting already in the nineteen teens and then really until the end of the 1940s in fact, you could argue he was a little slow to to grasp what was becoming pretty obvious, but the degree to which he believed that the Americans would be there for him in the end that the Americans would support his cause, would prevent the French from doing this, mm. I think it's it's just really powerful. And I think you know history would have been very, very different uh, if, uh, well, if uh, Franklin Roosevelt had lived a little bit longer, there's a counterfactual for you. I like do you think that yeah. he might well have kept the French from coming back in. But the point is, no question that Ho believed this of the Americans until until late.
2: Mm. Although we, we've we done quite a few episodes talking about the Atlantic Charter and uh, those early discussions between yeah. FDR and Churchill, as reported by FDR's son, Elliot. And um, yeah. there, was, there seemed to be these two conversations happening around that time. On one hand, Roosevelt saying to Churchill, well, no more empire after this. And Churchill was like, yeah. are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> but um, at the same time, there's a lot of back channel communications saying, well, we don't mean the British and the French. You guys are going to be OK. We, we mean the, everyone else. Anyway, um, moving on. So yeah. the Truman Doctrine was about the United States uh, getting involved in the world uh, where there were threats to uh the the, the way countries are being run but then then a few years later we have nsc 68 which again i think a lot of yeah. americans may not be aware of can can you perhaps provide a quick introduction to nsc 68 and explain yeah how it's different from the truman doctrine uh, like it goes from moves on from containment yeah. and actually goes to rollback it really
0: does so it's it's um it's uh spring of nineteen fifty. I think it's important to note the, the the timing here because the periodization matters. So we it's critical for us to remember here that NSC sixty eight comes out of or results from, as maybe a better way of putting it, the so called twin shocks of, of nineteen forty nine, which is the Soviet detonation of a of an atomic device mm-hmm. and it's Mao Mao Zedong's victory in the Chinese Civil War. And I think in order to understand NSC 68, which is drafted before the Korean War begins, mm. uh, you have to understand again those those twin those huge develops developments in, in, in 49. And as you were suggesting, it's a remarkable document. Stays classified for the next 25 years. So it's only in the mid 70s that historians get their hands on it. But it it is it's really a call for rollback. It's a it's a, it's a much more ambitious. Um, undertaking than, than containment. Um, in the end, you could argue that, well, they didn't really attempt to roll back. So it's in some ways a continuation of containment. But if, but if you read the document literally, it certainly calls for much more than mere containment. It involves a big increase in defense spending, uh, a much more vigilant posture uh, globally for the United States. And it becomes a kind of a blueprint, as it's all often called, for U.S. policy then for the next, you know, couple of decades.
2: (laughs) Some might argue even to this very day.
0: Oh, I think so. In fact, that's a very good point. I think you could argue that that architecture, if that's Mm. the best word, maybe it is. But what NSC 68 lays out in this blueprint, blueprint really is about a commitment to global engagement, to be able to project American power to all four corners of the globe, and that remains even under Barack Obama, arguably. Hmm. Um, the driving sort of policy to this day, I agree.
2: It, it, NSC 68, to me, sort of engineered this view in terms of the bureaucracy of the government, for uh, bipartisan view, yeah. of the, the need for America to have enormous military superiority uh, as well as economic yeah. Superiority, and we we've done quite a bit on economics on this series, and Bretton Woods, and and uh, the the sort of economic drivers of conflict, but um, but again, it, it always boggles my mind when I think about how, in a matter of decades, two or three decades, the official view uh, of the the White House and Congress went from isolationism mm-hmm. under. Wilson and even, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in FDR's, I think, third, second or third mm-hmm. presidential campaign, he was still saying, no, no, we're not going to get involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and here we are in 1950 and the policy is, well, actually, we need to run the world. We need to have the biggest yeah. damn army uh, that the world has ever yeah. seen. And and it just, you know, the, the, the differential between the United States military power and yeah. the rest of the world, as we know, and has continued to grow ever since.
0: As to go over since, I would only, I would only say that it's not really a, a two or three decades. I would say it's actually one decade. Right. And it just occurs to me, listen, it occurs to me listening to you that there is a a great book to be written. I don't think it has been written, but a book that basically looks at a decade, precise decade, nineteen forty to nineteen fifty, and so you could begin. Somebody really should write this book. Is you that could begin alive? with the fall of France. There you go. This this is what you guys should co-author. The fall of France, I would argue, has a very important uh, effect on American strategic thinking in, Mm. in as you know, 1940. Um, And then, as we've just said, NSC 68, precisely a decade later, um, they bookend their—you have a transformation. Mm. There's no question in that period, and you could probably also— Go drill down further and suggest that that there is a period of, of, of a couple of years in the middle of the uh, of the decade when it becomes clear that the Nazis are on the ropes, but that the Soviets are looming as a as a as a perceived threat um, that are really important. But I but I think forty to fifty is a it's just a key it's a key period, no question.
1: If if I can add to that, so from 45 to 50, we're able to keep uh, the Soviet Union in check relatively inexpensively because we've got uh, the atomic bomb and they don't. And then you go from that to they get the atomic bomb to us going to NSC-68, where like, you know what, we're going to have deficits for the foreseeable future, but it's okay because it's a part of a plan. So we go from a pretty good cost saving way to keep the Soviets checked to just out and out spending and I guess the good news is, besides keeping the Soviets contained, is it's going to stimulate the American economy. So win-win. But what about yeah. all those deficits that it was going to produce? Yeah, I guess it
0: just didn't matter. Oh, there's no question. No, I don't think it. I mean, it, I, I don't think it did, and it connects to something we haven't really uh, discussed, or at least the perception was that it didn't really uh, have a, a negative effect. But it does connect to this the so-called military-industrial complex. And one of the things that Campbell and I felt in writing the book was that we didn't do enough. I think necessarily we couldn't. Mm-hmm. Else could do a lot more to to really examine this military industrial complex, which by the way, initially Eisenhower wanted to call the military industrial congressional complex. <laughs> Mm. But uh, savvy, accurate. savvy domestic advisor said, "You know, maybe that's not such a good idea." But <laughs> you know, sort of drop the congressional part of it. <laughs> yeah. But the the importance of that complex in in I think ultimately even you know driving key foreign policy decisions really shouldn't be underestimated. And it's a it's a complex thing to write about. We need to understand more about the military industrial complex, mm-hmm. how it came into being. How it reached the extent that it reached—it's—it's um, it's hugely important, and yet we don't know that much about it.
2: Yeah, we do. A, we we did have uh, planned to talk to you about that. I mean, we've done quite a number of episodes, um, as I mentioned earlier, on economics, and we talk about the military-industrial mm-hmm. complex and just the, the the idea that I was trying to get across to people is just to try and get a a grasp of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Businesses in the United States that make a lot of money out of the country going to war yeah. uh, and that it's not just yep. the armaments suppliers. I think people tend to assume it's the armament suppliers or the Halliburtons oh. that go in there for reconstruction. It's people who sell software to the bases. It's people who sell shoes, pencils, mm-hmm. uh, I mean... Yeah. You know, exercise equipment, uh, yeah. these government contracts that the Pentagon uh, yeah. <laughs> gives out to, to build and maintain bases
0: yeah,
2: uh, is worth billions and billions every year, which is money no, in the pockets no of pers- business owners. They, they come to rely on that revenue. And, and so if America just stopped running all of these overseas bases, all of a sudden there's probably half the economy would go into the toilet.
0: Well, it's a very good point, and you could add to your list. You could also add labor unions.
2: Yes. Uh, we know
0: mm. this from the Cold War that came to see a, 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 to have, again, a kind of vested interest in, in, in seeing this continue. And even individual communities, especially in the West, California, and some other states, and in, in Texas, that, we, that became very, very dependent on this complex. The only thing that I guess one would say as a kind of counterpoint is that if you look again at the Vietnam case, which is the one that I know best, initially in 64 and 65, I think uh, industrial uh, leaders, leaders in, in, in industrial America were wary of an escalation of the war. Uh, I think they were not keen on seeing a major a major uh, new war in, in Southeast Asia, Asia for the United States. I think subsequently they came to benefit from it, many of them, especially the the arms uh, manufacturers, uh, the military contractors. But, you know, I think it would be too simple to say that they egged on the administration or that they are behind the Vietnam War. I don't think it's true.
2: Yeah, and one of the points I've tried to make is that, I'm, you know, I don't think economic interests are the sole reason. I, I think these the reasons countries go to war are far more complex than being able to say, well, it's about money or it's about oil or even it's about genuine uh, threats or, or the sense of aggression or uh, uh, some sort of... Um, sorry, I haven't had enough coffee. It's very early in the morning here in Australia.
0: Um, oh, that's right. You're you're in the morning now.
2: Yeah. Pre- preemptive strikes is the word I was looking for. That, that, that It's usually a mixture yeah. of all of these things. And it, it's a complex soup of incentives and motivations And that our job is to try and pick them apart and and particularly in in the case of our show, point out the ones that people may not have given a lot of consideration to in the past because they don't tend to get like the the economic drivers of the military industrial complex don't get talked a lot about. I think in school Mm. or in the mainstream media, Uh, it's something that people probably uh, haven't spent a lot of time drilling down into anyway.
0: Oh, I think I think you're totally right, and I would just say that you're you're absolutely correct that we have the task, as I think you put it, of picking them apart. I would just say that another way to phrase it, which I use with my students, is to say that we have an obligation as historians to construct a causal hierarchy, is the phrase I often use. Mm. In other words, I don't want my students to simply say, oh, Vietnam happened or Iraq happened for X numbers, X number of reasons, and then just leave it at that. What I want them to do is to, to order, to produce a ranked order, um, which isn't to say that there's necessarily a correct order, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. I do want them to give me their sense of what they think is most important, even if we agree that monocausal history is not satisfactory history. Uh, and so that's really sort of the task. Uh, and, um, um, but I think, <laughs> excuse me, you're absolutely right in in, in describing this and in, in suggesting that the economic dimension of this complex is not something that a lot of Americans have thought very much about.
1: Yeah, and we're not even told about it in high school or college, so it's hard for us to think about it um, because it gets crossed oh, okay. over. But anyway, yeah, let me, let me let's uh, look at another pillar of the Cold War. Um, how realistic was the threat of the domino theory? And uh, how much of it was uh, just American, mm-hmm. uh, American paranoia or just maybe the politicians using that like we'd covered before to scare everybody out of their mm-hmm. pants?
0: it's uh, a good question. I, I, I think that it was always a kind of goofy theory when you when you really think about it. Um, and mm-hmm. it became so more so over time. That said, if we go back for a minute to the twin shocks of 1949 and you, you consider this from an American official's perspective, or yeah. I would probably guess an Australian official's perspective, other, other leaders as well, uh, you know, maybe there's something to this. All of a sudden, you've doubled the number of major communist foes in an instant when Mao's uh, communists win. I could see why on some level they began to think this way, which, by the way, underscores an important point, long before Eisenhower gave a name to this, in a press conference mm. in in 1954, the idea already existed. So you could see in countless documents, including British documents and French documents, not just American, a kind of domino theorizing. In other words, if country X falls, it's going to be just a matter of time before Y falls. The problem with the theory is that history doesn't work that way, and but uh, world affairs, uh, world politics doesn't work that way. What mm. what you know what happens in a given country is ultimately what's going to be that the, what 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 drives things much more than you know what might be going on in the neighboring country, and so um, there's some reason to 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 imagine that people would agree or would believe in a domino theory, but historically it has not really been borne out, and I think it's worth saying that with respect to Vietnam, I argue in an earlier book called Choosing War. Which is really more about Kennedy and Johnson and their decision making. That by the time we get into the early 1960s, privately, U.S. officials concede that the domino theory is much too pat. Uh, I don't think they really believe in it anymore. What they believe in instead is what uh, what what can be called a psychological domino theory, which is namely mm-hmm. credibility. It's not so much that individual countries, geographically, you know, will fall one by one. It's that America's prestige and America's credibility uh, all around the world will suffer. So it's related to the domino theory, but it's not quite the thing.
1: Yeah, and this
2: was the, the thing that bothered me all through my 20s and into my 30s, I think, when I started to get interested in history, was the idea of, well, so what when the domino theory? I mean from an American perspective so what if all of these countries did fall it doesn't that fit under the banner mm-hmm. of self-determination if they want to be communist countries and they yeah. fight it out internally so yeah. no. what, what the hell does that have to do with the United States and it took me <laughs> it took me a decade of thinking and reading to work out my answer to yeah. that question well, what what would be your answer to that I, question fred
0: well i think it's i think it's i think it's Great. You were clearly a very precocious young man, let me tell you. Uh, (laughs) I, you know, uh, one could totally ask that question. And some people did. Uh, You can find here and there a document that says, well, let's suppose this does happen. That after we allow Ho Chi Minh to succeed in Tonkin, and perhaps take all of Indochina, suppose then that you know, the rest of Indochina goes, as they say, and then let's suppose the Philippines goes after that. So what? There were people who said this. The answer that Johnson gave you, which was just a crazy one in a way, but it resonated. Johnson said, you know, pretty soon we're gonna be fighting them in the streets of San Francisco. Uh, In other words, it will ultimately, if we allow this Mm. to happen, little by little, it's gonna come to our own shores. He never explained just how this was going to happen. But I think the argument was that ultimately it would actually come to the, you know, geographic approaches of the United States. But But even what was the answer that you ultimately came to?
2: Well, but even so, so what? It doesn't don't Americans have the right to choose communism or socialism if it comes to these shores. Like, isn't it a free country where they get to decide for themselves? Why would Johnson be concerned about Americans choosing socialism?
0: Well, there's a still larger question, and it is interesting Again, to come back to, and Campbell and I hint at this a little bit in our books, but I don't think we do very much with it at all, but that you can have in 1948, as late as 48, you can have in the figure of Henry Wallace uh, Uh, running a credible national campaign. It's true that he didn't do very well. so mm. We don't mean to suggest that he came anywhere close to winning, but it was a legitimate national campaign that basically posed your question in different words, you know, why can't we uh, uh, think differently about our own uh, political system? Why can't we have a full uh, agreement with the Soviet Union and so on? Um, And he could still in that, that was as, (laughs) excuse me, as late as you could have such a campaign. Mm. It was impossible in the decades thereafter, again, because of this much narrower range of acceptable political discourse in in the country. That's not, a uh, full answer to your question. I guess I'm just maybe posing it in a different in a different way.
2: Well, the, 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 to answer your question, before the conclusion I came to is that the the economic elite in the United States would have suffered badly if Americans had adopted more socialistic thoughts and practices, and they were determined. Mm-hmm. To shut that down, even as a remote possibility, by any means necessary, uh, through propaganda, through uh, in, you know, trying yeah. to make the uh, existing socialist uh, countries uh, look as bad as possible, uh-huh. even though some of them had a lot of bad, obviously horrible shit uh-huh. going on under Stalin in particular, but they were determined to make them look... Mm-hmm. To to vilify them as much as possible, uh, even if it required just making shit up, basically.
0: Yeah, no, and I think I think that's I think that's right. I guess it does invite a, a follow up question, which is, well, okay, if 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 this is why it happened, that America's uh, political and economic leaders saw the threat to themselves and to their own supremacy if they allowed this to happen. I guess one could ask the question, well, why was it so easy for them to make that that sale? Because it would seem to me, other historians might disagree, but that they didn't have to work very hard to make that argument, and that that labor unions, for example, and and others who might have been in a position to say, now wait a minute, we're not sure we agree with this, and let's duke it out at the at the ballot box, mm-hmm. it didn't really happen. Uh, as I said, you know, the Republicans and Democrats were basically hawkish. All the way through here, when it came to foreign policy issues, and you don't see a kind of groundswell from below of the type that you might see, for example, in my my native Sweden, where the left is, or at least was, uh, a more sort of formidable force than you see in this country. Uh, well, but that may be leading us down a different path, I'm not sure.
2: yeah, I'd point to Edward Bernays and Walter Littman, I think they answered those questions. Yeah, not either. Just uh, how easy it is to manipulate people with propaganda. It doesn't take much. But you know, it's it's a it's a good, and I think there is something inherent in in American idealism and exceptionalism about being different and better that that played a role in there as well. Anyway, um yeah. How much how much time do you have, Fred? Like, uh, I see we're coming up on sort of fifty-five minutes, and we've still got half a dozen um, questions.
0: Well, I think I think it, oh, you do. Well, I think my wife and I are going to have a little dinner here when we finish, which will be lovely. Um, but I, I, you can fire away for certainly a few more. This is, this is fun.
2: Okay. Well, feel free to uh, draw a line under it when you have to go. Yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Um, so I want to uh, – let's, let's – um, let me skip a few questions here. Um, okay. I've, I've heard you use the term permissive context to explain uh, – a part of how America got involved in both Vietnam and then Iraq in 2003. Can can you explain for our audience what you mean by per, the permissive context?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, 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 um, I argue uh, with respect to both of those wars, Vietnam, 65, let's say, and Iraq, 2003, that it's not enough to say, in the, in the former case, this was Johnson's war. And in the latter case, this is Bush's war. Um, that in order to understand why they happened, both of them, in my judgment, you know calamitous, you have to look at the at the broader context. And it's really principally a domestic context, although i would I would say that there is an international element as well. So what I argue is that you have to look at the Congress. You have to look at the press, or we could say the media, and you have to look at you know, the general public opinion. And for all three of them, in both instances, and in fact it's quite interesting to draw, to draw connections between the two of them, you see that though there are plenty of skeptics, so if we look at Vietnam first, the Senate Democratic leadership uh, under LBJ privately uh, argued against escalation, Many moderate Republicans, and they existed in those days. Many moderate Republicans also argued against an escalated war. There was a lot of uh, dissension and, and pessimism on Capitol Hill, notwithstanding the fact that the the Gulf of Tonkin uh, uh, resolution in Congress in sixty four was almost unanimous in, its, in, in in terms of the vote. nevertheless, there is this um, uh, private skepticism, and yet, Congress goes along with Johnson's uh, uh, expansion of the war in 65. And so there's a a permissive context there. Likewise, in the press, um, uh, the press doesn't really begin to ask tough questions, certainly after American ground troops have been committed, because there's a kind of rally around the flag effect until 66 and 67. And the, Mm -hmm. the general public is basically apathetic. So there's a permission permissive environment there, too, in terms of what people in middle America are saying about the war. Um, They're not really all that interested, just like the French populace was not all that interested before them. And I think we could talk about the same thing with respect to Iraq in 2002, 2003. There's a willingness to go along with what the administration is arguing. There's a willingness on the part of the Congress almost to be almost to be snowed, if that's the, if that's the right word, that, that Congress is, is, is not wanting to have a responsibility for a difficult policy issue. And so is quite content to cede its authority to the administration in, 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 with respect to Iraq as well. Mm. And so that's, in essence, what I'm talking about here. That does have an international dimension, which is that, in the Vietnam case, key allies a notable exception here being the Australians, key allies are basically saying to the Americans, don't do this. You don't need to fight the Viet Cong. Even if you do, you probably can't win because of the weaknesses of the Saigon uh, government. But they're not really willing to make that case, you know, overtly and publicly because their bilateral relationship with Washington is so important. So there too, mm. there's a permissive context. Mm.
1: If if I can add to that real quick, I loved the ah uh, the permissive context when you got to the uh, outrageous statements uh, McCarthy was making. I mean, the press knew that he was totally wrong in his pronouncements, but they went along with it anyway. Can can you give us an idea of why they printed and and didn't really challenge him when he made these outrageous statements?
0: Well, I think it's it's. Um I guess it's really part of a, or it 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 flows from a, a reluctance to challenge an administration that is is arguing that there is a national security threat. There is a belief mm-hmm. on the part of even you know responsible, um, you know serious journalists that they should mm-hmm. rally around the flag, rally around the president. Um, And in this instance, and in many others, there is, uh, uh, you know, this has really serious consequences. Um, Again, maybe I'm being a bit of a Pollyanna, but I do wonder and perhaps hope if in the present moment in 2016, this is beginning to shift a little bit, although I don't, you know, I don't hold my breath. I think if we have a a very serious foreign policy crisis, um, we could see the same kind of phenomenon happening again in this permissive context could um, could operate just as strongly as it did in the in those two previous cases,
1: and, and it probably didn't hurt that it sold a lot of newspapers.
0: Sold a lot of newspapers, uh, and yeah. That's, w- uh, that's w- yeah. you
2: know, and advertising on certain <laughs> cable news networks. Um, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's finish up by jumping ahead in time, if we can, Fred, and talk about the end of the Cold War. In early February 1990, uh, there were negotiations going on between the U.S. and the Soviets. And my understanding is that the U.S. leaders made the Soviets an offer. And I believe this is backed up now by uh, quite a few notes uh, that are in the archives. And there are transcripts of meetings, I think, Mm -hmm. February 9th, uh, then Secretary of State James Baker suggested that in exchange for cooperation on the unification of East and West Germany, the U.S. would make, in his words, ironclad guarantees that NATO would not expand one inch eastward. Uh, A week later, Gorbachev agrees to Mm -hmm, begin mm -hmm. reunification talks and literally almost immediately, within a few years, Poland, Hungary, the Czech Republic, the Baltic states and others are ushered into NATO. Did the US screw Russia over in in this uh, negotiation?
0: Well, it's a really large question and there are historians, maybe some that you've had on your your show, who will be in a better position than I am to 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 speak to that issue. I think that the the capsule history that you just gave us um, is is spot on as far as I can tell. And you know it's hard, let me just put it this way. It's hard to avoid the con- conclusion uh, that this went on, that it was a kind of screwing over. Um, I don't want to speak with, you know, great assurance on this because I'm not as familiar as some are with with some of the new revelations. And I think you're quite right about this, that we have more material now, including from German archives and other archives, that really address this issue. And, um, you know, if we haven't come to the bottom of it in terms of an answer, I think we probably could. That's... That's
1: as best as I
2: can do on that one. Well, you know, I I find, again, Americans that I talk to don't seem to be aware of this one-inch, the one-inch punch, as I like to call it, because I'm a Bruce Lee fan. Um, Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, when we look at things that uh, has been going on with Crimea and Ukraine and Putin, etc., There seems to be a a degree of ignorance that Americans have, and not just Americans, people around the world when they're reading the media, uh, about what's been happening in the last uh, 20-odd years from a Russian perspective in terms of their cordon sanitaire, uh, the buffer zone, and we've talked a lot about this on the show about the amount of times that Russia's been invaded – uh, the devastation oh, done to Russia, <laughs> up and mm-hmm. up until and including yep. uh, the Operation Barbarossa. So,
0: anywho, um, yeah. well, and 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 that's and that's just to, to cycle back to where we circle back to where we started. You know, to I, I, I think about this, and I think we wrote a little bit about this in our book. Campbell and I did. But the, the the situation that Russian leaders, the Soviet leaders, found themselves in in 45, mm. their determination to make sure that, that these approaches uh, were protected, um, it certainly makes sense on some level. And when you consider how difficult their landmass was to defend, um, um, mm-hmm. it has really, really important implications for why, you know, as, as monstrous as Stalin uh, was in many ways, you can see why from just a sort of realpolitik sense, mm. uh, he and his uh, colleagues were determined to try to prevent this kind of thing from happening uh, again, which then takes us to you know, to the more recent past that you're talking about now, and you can see why those key, those moments in early 1990, in, let's say 89, 90, were very consequential.
2: Indeed. Well, listen, we'll we'll let you go. Do you mind if I wrap up, Ray? Yep. Absolutely. Um, The last question I wanted to ask you, sir, the late George Mm. Cannon, who we've mentioned many times, one of the key authors of the containment strategy at the dawn of the Cold War. In his later years, he wrote, It could, in fact, be said that the first thing we Americans need to learn to contain is, in some ways, ourselves. Would
0: you agree? No, oh, I, I, I think it's such a powerful statement, and I completely agree. And I think you know, again, coming up this somebody who, who has spent uh, somebody who has spent, you know, 20 plus years, a quarter of a century of my life studying the Vietnam War and studying um, the reasons why that struggle happened, uh, the consequences of that, of that struggle. Not only for fifty-eight thousand Americans, but for some three million Vietnamese, um, and of course the, the the destruction, the geopolitical consequences. Uh, I think the power of Kenan's quote that you just gave us, um, and the need for Americans to to understand the importance of containing themselves. Uh, uh, it's just it's just a, a a deeply deeply important point for me. And it speaks. By the way, it suggests that one of other Kenan's great gifts was as a wordsmith. I think he was just a marvelous writer, um, and you see an example of it there. But but the but the substantive point, I think, is is great.
2: Well, thank you again for coming on. Now, I, I should point out that in terms of our series, we're doing a linear historiography of the Cold War. I think we're twenty odd episodes in, and we're just getting up to the Yalta mm-hmm. Conference. Um, <laughs> we and. <laughs> <laughs> They're about 90-minute episodes, so uh, we like to take our time with these things. When we get up to Vietnam, uh, we would be honored if you would yeah. come back on the show. And I understand that you're, oh, your, be new, delighted. your new book is on JFK.
0: Yep, I'm writing a, a, a biography. I've, I've joined that dreaded sub-genre <laughs> of writer called Presidential Historian.
2: <laughs> well, um, you know, we'd love to have you back on at some stage. It'd probably be like it's going to be no, five. It's going to be five years before we get to JFK. Yeah. So you've got plenty of time well. to finish the book. So take your time.
0: Well, I would love to. I would love to do it again. It's been a pleasure tonight, gentlemen. I think we had some technical issues there, but uh, it Sorry, worked we'll,
2: okay. We'll edit out those. That's fine. And again, we really appreciate both okay. both your time tonight and sure. the, the work that you've done on those books, which have been an invaluable resource Absolutely. to us. So thank you, sir.
0: Thank you. Thank you, guys. You guys take care, and we'll um, we'll be in touch, as they say.
2: Enjoy
1: your dinner. All right. Ciao.
0: Yep. Bye. Bye. Thanks.
1: Well, there you go, Ray. Very charming, nice man. And again, his book his book is very well written. It almost it almost reads like a uh, spy mystery thriller. The pace is just pretty intense, and they just keep building and building and building as a Cold War goes along. It was a very enjoyable read. I have to say that. Did you
2: see my my Skype message to you about half an hour ago? No. It yeah. said, said, just read the fucking question.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you did? Oh, you just ignored it? <laughs> Pretty much. Nothing personal. Nothing personal. <laughs> okay. Did, was, there, was there any part of the book that you wanted to mention that we didn't get to tonight?
2: Oh, there was plenty, man. Yeah. Like, okay. I mean, we just ran out of time. I wanted to talk about... Stalin's objectives, uh, I wanted to talk about the fact that... Uh, and we, and we touched on this already a number of times, but according to his book, Embers of War, he suggests that Kennedy, Johnson, Nixon, Kissinger, and Robert McNamara all privately doubted the Vietnam War was either winnable or necessary.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. But
2: were concerned but then- that they're political credibility would suffer should they yeah. withdraw without victory so on one hand they're telling the u.s public it's all going to be great we're going to win this we're going to stick in it until we win it'll be a disaster if we pulled out but privately they as as he said about johnson they're like it's completely meaningless we don't need to be there it's got nothing to do with us right but once and it's okay were, we in, we're in yeah
1: but here. Here's my thing, like like uh, the professor said, so they didn't have the balls to end it, so 58,000 men had to die, probably double that number had to be wounded. So And these people were not honored when they came back home. So we had to go through all that because no one had the balls to sacrifice their own career and go, you know what, if I do this, I'm not going to get reelected, but fuck it. I'm bringing our guys home. No one had the guts to do that. Mm. And here's the part I wanted to get to. When, when Eisenhower was president, he said, there's no such thing as a limited nuclear war. If you if you start fighting, and if I push you and you push me and I swing and you swing, suddenly it's all going to get the fuck out of hand because that's the way fights go. The same thing with nuclear wars. There's no such thing as a limited nuclear war. So if this ever happens, it's going to go big. And that's just the way it is. So he would not use nuclear. Uh, excuse me, he would not use the atomic bomb but he certainly did you know scare the shit out of people with it so he was able to get some stuff done whereas kennedy comes along and 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 when you read this book you're going to admire i think eisenhower a little more than you do and kennedy a little less than you do but um kennedy's like no no we can come up with some options we can come up with some deals i'll have a whole slew of options of dealing with people with limited war uh and they just found out very quickly that they were wrong Eisenhower was right. But again, they were in the White House. It's too late to do anything about it. And so the whole Cuban Missile Crisis, which I can't wait to get to, that was absolutely fascinating. But Eisenhower was right. You, you don't play that card because there's no such thing as just a little oh. bit of, of atomic war. It just doesn't happen.
2: Yeah, and that's the great tragedy of the, the arms race, nuclear arms race, is on all sides, not just Eisenhower. Yeah, Stalin, yeah. Khrushchev, all of these guys knew Categorically, we can't make a nuclear strike. Yeah. It, it, well, the only person who didn't know was MacArthur in Korea. He was like, "Let's nuke the fucking
1: <laughs> Chinese." Right. Him, him and Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he wanted he wanted to go. He wanted. To, let's go. Let's go.
2: Yeah. And uh, I think it was uh, was it Truman who was still president at that time. I think so. He said, uh, "Get back yeah. here, you <laughs> fucking twat! What the fuck? What the fuck well, is that- wrong with you?" But even, even when, all these guys yeah. understood this: that after the Russians got the bomb, they couldn't—they couldn't use it. It would literally be, you know, not necessarily the end of a human race on the planet, but it might as well be. And I think I, I, I've explained this earlier on in the series that if you go back to um, uh, von Clausewitz, mm-hmm. so for people that aren't you know, sort of 19th century history buffs. There was a, uh, I think it was a Prussian officer during the Napoleonic Wars, um, or as I should refer to them technically, the wars against the French Revolution, because... There you go. Anyway. Um, Von Clausewitz uh, later on, after Napoleon was dead and buried, wrote this book uh, about war called On War. And... um, One of the most famous quotes of it is that war is an extension of politics by other means or diplomacy by other means. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that both the Soviets and the Americans realized during the, the, the early years of the atomic age was that there was no point having a nuclear war if everyone was dead at the end of it. You know, you're not right. gaining anything. War is about gaining something that you can't gain by politics or or defending something that you can't defend through diplomatic channels where right. diplomacy breaks down. But there's no point in doing that if a third or a half or two thirds or three quarters of your yeah. country and your population is wiped out and the other guy's population as well. That's just it's counterproductive. to have a war where everybody dies. There's no upside in that. So they knew that, but they continued to escalate tensions, to build up their nuclear capacity. Like America today is still sitting, I think on about five or 6,000 nuclear warheads. And each one of them is a hundred times more powerful than the bombs they dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Like what the, what's the fucking point? I mean, how many do you
1: need how many, how, many, how many times can you destroy a city? The answer is once.
2: Yeah, but I mean, and even, okay, so you want to take out, what, how many major cities do the Soviets, if you added the Soviets and North Korea and uh, Iran and, uh, and all yeah, of America's we you know, still traditional enemies, yeah. What do? You, what do you, how many do you need, like five each? There's 10, 15, <laughs> 15 that's all you need. You don't need 5,000.
1: Because anyway. you can have the radiation floating around. And ju- just yeah. the other part was, uh, yeah, just when JFK came to power and they had the, the spy planes flying over and they said, OK, they've got about 100 active nu- uh, atomic missiles. We've got 15,000. But no, no, like you said, let's keep ramping up, building more because it was creating jobs and no one had the courage to 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 t- turn to the industrial complex and go, no, we're not going to do this anymore. No one had any guts and it's just a very sad, pathetic period uh, in world history.
2: Well, yeah, I mean it's complex, and there are complex reasons. Yeah, we absolutely. touched on that with Fred tonight, and uh, we'll touch on that more as to how all of that developed. But yeah, I mean, ju- you look back on it with the benefit of hindsight, of course, and go, "What uh, the exactly. fuck were they thinking?" Yeah, and then you, watch and then when this- you do talk it. Yeah, And then you watch the second presidential debate and you go, holy shit, like uh, by comparison.
1: (laughs) They're brilliant. Yeah, yeah. No, just again, last thing, after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, when we set up a line with Moscow and we have interpreters there 24 hours a day and we allow each other to see what the other person's doing to a certain degree so it's like i can tell if you launch a bomb uh, missile you can tell if i launch a missile and so just having that little bit of transparency brought all uh, brought a lot of the tension down so that was the beginning of uh, of a period where things weren't so crazy but again we kept spending the money increasing the military and fucking with everybody all over the world because no one wanted to look weak
2: now you and I have got to get out of here. We have an Alexander show yes. to do. Let's do you go, want to finish? Do. Sorry, I was just so finish with your Cold War joke.
1: Oh God, it's it's really not a good one, but I certainly will. I will bring this down on a low note, like I normally do. That's kind of my <laughs> my uh, skill set. Why does the KGB always patrol in the number of three?
2: I don't know. One mate. who knows Why? how to read.
1: Oh, well I was about to say one who knows how to read one who knows how to write and the last one has to keep an eye on the two dangerous intellectuals in front of him
2: <laughs> yeah I like that one that's a good one all right buddy good show <laughs> thank you where's good the, show where's the fucking theme music hold on
1: where's Where's the stop button oh there it is there its ta-da
0: ta-da <laughs> The Iron Curtain has descended
1: across the continent.
0: ...of the Soviet military build-up on the island of Cuba. The purpose of these bases can be none other than to provide a nuclear strike capability against the Western Hemisphere.